Let's do this. Um, so this week I was reading, not this week actually, this was a few weeks ago, I was reading this commentary by Warren Wiersbe, and uh, he told an interesting story uh, that served as a warning uh, to, to whoever was reading it and inspired me to give my own version of, of his story that he was telling. Um, so lately, for the, past, uh, for the past week or so, whenever Vreni, who's my wife, whenever Vreni and I would put our son to sleep, uh, he's been making this, this particular comment uh, to which I've been giving a particular response. Um, and th this is how the night usually goes. So it's time for bed. We brush his teeth, put on his PJs, get him into bed, and then we pray. Uh, sometimes we'll sing some worship songs, uh, sometimes not. And then we'll go over scripture that he's memorized or he's in the process of memorizing. Um, and all of this is typically done with, you know, the lights on or in, in his room or at the very least, like there's a light outside of his room that's, you know, shining into his room. So everything's illuminated. It's providing a good amount of light in his room. But after we're done with all that, after we're done with the whole, you know, night process, um, you know, we turn off the light. And lately, as we've, been, as we've been making our exit out of his room, he'll say, I can't see, it's too dark. That's what, that's what my son will say. And then I'll respond to him by saying, well, just close your eyes for a little bit, and then your eyes will adjust to the dark, and then you'll be able to see. And as I was reading Wearsby's commentary, uh, it struck me that even though we spend all day in the light, you know, we're, we're either in the light of the sun or we have lamps or light, you know, lights. We're just, we spent all day in the light. Even though we spend all that time in the light, it only takes a few seconds, maybe even a few minutes for our eyes to adjust to the darkness. And at first it may be a shock, you know, the lights go off and you're like, oh, I can't see anything. But eventually we get accustomed to the darkness. We get used to it. And in the same way, this is how sin is in our lives. You know, though we, we, may, we may spend all day in God's presence, in the light of God's presence, it only takes a little bit of time with sin before we get accustomed to it and we get used to its presence in our life. That's why we need to get serious about sin and cut it off. Just cut it off as soon as it appears in our lives. And that's something that I want, I want us all to keep in mind as we go over tonight's message which I've entitled, uh, Stay Battling, Stay Battling. So if you're taking notes, that's the title of tonight's message, Stay Battling. And tonight we're going to look at three points. Our first point for the night is bathrobe and Ugg boots, bathrobe and Ugg boots. The second point of the night is your death-to-life ratio, death-to-life ratio. And the third point of the night is watching them get high, watching them get high. So let's look at our first point, bathrobe and Ugg boots as we read 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's reread verse 1. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So here we go with another reference, another, another therefore. You know, Peter writes therefore, so it's good to know, as people have said, it's good to know what the therefore is there for. And so in the previous verses... And in the previous weeks that we've been spending in 1 Peter, uh, Peter has been on this topic of suffering like Christ. Suffering like Christ, which is to suffer even when we do what is right or good. This is the example that Christ left for us. And this is what we have been called to do. To likewise suffer even when we do what is right and good. But up until this point, 
We've been reading about this idea of suffering for doing good or doing what's right from the perspective of, well, this is what we do because this is the example that Christ left for us. Also, this is what we do because it pleases God. You know, we find favor with God when we endure suffering, even when we do what is right and good. But now, in 1 Peter 4.1, we get a different perspective of our suffering, a different motivation to throw in with those other motivations and encouragements. And it's what we read at the end of verse 1. Let's read it again. It says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because here it is, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is another motivator, another encouragement, perhaps even an enticement for some of us uh, in regards to suffering, that when we suffer in these mortal bodies, the, pro the, the propensity for sin, it begins to diminish when we suffer. So turn your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're going to look at an example of this truth in action. And remember, if you have to go to your table of contents, that's okay. There's no judgment here. So 2 Samuel chapter 11. And as you turn there, uh, Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now, as has been stated in the past, uh, we're in a spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war. We've been enlisted into the Lord's army when we gave our lives to Christ. And, and now the enemy of Christ is our enemy too. Not because we did anything specific, but the fact that we are Christ's own possession. That means that Satan and his demons, they're now opposed to us. So we're in this spiritual battle all the days of our lives. And you guys can go ahead and remove that slide. Thank you. And now as we look at 2 Samuel, we're going to read about King David. We're going to read about King David. So the brief story about David is that he was chosen by God to be the king over Israel to replace the first king, Saul. You know, Saul had become a selfish, weak, and disobedient man in regards to following God's leading in his life. So God appointed David, and David was referred to as a man after God's own heart. He loved God. He was a good king. He was obedient to the Lord. He loved the Lord and wanted to serve and worship him in all that he did. And the Lord blessed David. David was a mighty man of valor. He was a powerful soldier, and he would defend the land of Israel from attacks, from the armies that would attack, and through the power of God. God was blessing him. But one day, David decided not to go to war. He stayed back, and we're going to read about what happened when he did and we're going to apply these verses to 1 Peter chapter 4. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, Then it happened in the spring, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. 
So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. So we'll stop there. We'll pause there. So remember what we read in Ephesians chapter 6, that we are in a spiritual battle against a very real enemy. You know, there was a story that came out of, of World War I on Christmas Eve of 1914, where German soldiers, uh, they decorated their trenches with lights, they were singing Christmas carols, and they even held up banners and signs that were wishing the British soldiers on the other side of, of no man's land in their trenches saying, Happy Christmas. They're wishing them a happy Christmas. Eventually, these enemy soldiers, they got up out of their trenches and they made a truce that they weren't going to fight each other on Christmas Day. You know, the, the war had gotten to be too much. It was like, man, we need a break from this, and it's Christmas. And so they made a truce. There was going to be no fighting on Christmas Day. So they had a Christmas dinner with each other, these German forces and these British forces. Even in, in enemy trenches, you know, they had Christmas dinner. Um, they played soccer. They gave haircuts to each other. They shared stories. It was just a nice little break from the war. But the break eventually came to an end as the commanding officers, you know, they disapproved of what was happening, and so it, it was put to an end. But they set their differences aside and enjoyed a holiday together. Even though they were enemies, in those moments, they remembered that they were all human. But this is not the battle that we find ourselves in. Our enemy is real. He hates our king, and he hates our king's people, which is us. He doesn't want to relate to us. He doesn't want to make a truce with us. He wants to destroy us. He's a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour. So we are ever in a battle. We are ever in a spiritual battle. And in battle, there is suffering. There is suffering in battle. War is not a time of peace and fun and relaxation. And David forgot this. He forgot this fact. There was a battle that was being fought, but instead of fighting that battle with the strength of the Lord, he stayed back and he got himself in trouble. He removed himself from the suffering of battle, and this is what gave him the time and opportunity to satisfy the lust of his flesh. Instead of his time being spent battling the enemy, which in itself is a distraction from your sin and the lust of the flesh, his time was free to do as he pleased, and he gave in to temptation. This is why Peter writes, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Christ was busy fighting the battle against sin when he was here, and he suffered through it. Now, we are encouraged to continue fighting that battle, which may bring suffering with it as well. But the suffering is good. The suffering is good, because not only is it what we've been called to, not only is it pleasing to God and we find favor with God when we suffer, but we are also pulled away from sin and its consequences when we suffer. Make no mistake, sin does have consequences. There are consequences to sin. So let's read about those consequences in David's life as a result of him pulling himself out of the battle and falling into sin. So 
He's going to try to cover his track. So let's pick back up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel. Uh, wait, is it 1 Samuel? 2 Samuel 11. Verse 6. Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. And then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house, wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. We'll pause there. Sneaky David, he's trying to get Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife so that Uriah would think that he was the one who got his wife pregnant. But Uriah seems to be an extremely loyal guy, and so it's not working. So let's jump down to verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, Place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. So it was as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab, and some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. And we'll stop there. Later on, we also read that after Uriah died and Bathsheba finished mourning over her dead husband, David took her as another one of his wives. So this pretty much covered up what had happened. But, but God knew. God knew. He even confronted him about it. But David had coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery. He stole another man's wife. He committed murder in an effort to cover up the adultery. He lied about it. So David did all of these things, and it resulted in the loss of two lives, Uriah, and we read in the next chapter that God caused the baby that was born from the adultery to get sick and die. A woman lost her husband and her child. A family was torn apart. The people observing the situation are probably doubting the goodness and the power of God. How could a loving God allow this to happen? How could a man after God's own heart do this? You call yourself a Christian if we're, if we're going to modern day terms? All because David chose to spare himself from the suffering and the hardship of war. All because David took himself out of the battle. Sure, he may have been feeling comfortable at home, walking around in his bathrobe and Ugg boots, but he removed himself from the very thing that was keeping him from falling to sin. And many times, because of the difficulty of our circumstances, we want to remove ourselves from the battle. Like, this is too hard. Can I just not be in this suffering anymore? But we don't realize that this is probably the exact thing that is keeping us from falling and, uh, on our faces into sin. It's God's mercy and grace that is keeping us in this battle of suffering a lot of the times. So I encourage you all, I encourage you all to have a different perspective. 
an encouraged perspective as you face suffering and, and these things associated with the walk and suffering because it's often most likely to your benefit, these things. And so this leads us to our second point, death to life ratio, death to life ratio. So let's, uh, let's go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to reread verse 1 and we're going to continue through verse 4. So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. It says, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. We'll stop there. So Peter says, live your remaining years for the will of God because you've already spent enough time living in the world. And I, I, I want us all to crunch some numbers right now. Angel's gonna appreciate this. Just kidding. But right, let's crunch some numbers. So, and if you need to write this down and keep track, you know, feel free. I mean, if you're already taking notes, might as well. Okay, so, so the first number that I want you guys to think about is uh, how old were you when you got saved? How old were you when you got saved? How old would you say you were when you finally came into a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ? Your desires changed. You wanted more of God, less of your sin. So for me, I was about 19 or 20 years old when I believed that I got saved. The Lord hit me with the gospel, and I believed, and I was changed. I was born again. So I'm going to say 19. So 19 is my first number. Whatever your first number is, how old are you when you got saved, when you were born again, give or take? So the next number that I want you to think about is, how old are you now? How old are you now? So for me, I'm 33. 33. So 19, 33. So now, now take that number, take your, your age, 33, and take away the first number, the age you were when you got saved. For me, it was 19. So 33 minus 19 is 14. I used a calculator on that one, so I know for sure it's 14. That's how many years that I've been in the Lord. That's how old I am in born-again years. Now, I realized as I was prepping all this, like, all, all this math just to, just to ask the question, how long have you been in the Lord? You know, it's, <laughs> it's a simple question, but I feel like, you know, make their brains work. Make sure they're awake, you know, because sometimes, you know, it's hard. It's Friday night. It's been a long week. But, yes, all that, how long have you been walking with the Lord? So, for me, 14 years. So I spent 19 years living as a spiritually dead person, 19 years. And at this point in my life, I've spent 14 years living as a born-again person. My death-to-life ratio is 19 to 14, 19 to 14. So currently, I've spent more years as a heathen living in sin than I have as a saved person born again. But the numbers aren't that disproportionate. I mean, it's, I'm a few years away from having been in the Lord just as long as I've been in the world or even longer. You know, I'm, I'm coming up on that. For some of you, that ratio might be out of whack. You know, you might be like, yeah, I've spent 20 years in the world and I've been spent three years in the Lord. So it's 20 to 3, that's a disproportionate number. Uh, for you, yes, that, that's, a, that's a huge difference. 
um, of time between time in the world and time with the Lord. For others of you, maybe you got saved super early. I know one of you got saved in junior high. You know, that's what you told me. So, you know, your number, you might have already been spending more time in the Lord than you did in the world. And that's cool. But here's something interesting to note. It's going to level the playing field for all of us, regardless of your death to life ratio. Your entire existence, the entirety of your life from conception all the way through eternity was meant to be an ever-present, always constant dwelling in the presence of God. But your sin ruined that. Your sin ruined this perfect record that you were always intended to have. There should not have been one day spent separated from God and his glorious presence. I remember when all the COVID shutdowns first happened in, uh, in 2020. Uh, I was still working for the Santa Monica Police Department. And um, when all the shutdowns happened, I was already off work because um, during that time, just prior to COVID and all that stuff, uh, my wife and I, uh, we, lost our, we lost our second child when she was 36 weeks pregnant. So I was, I was already at home, you know, just caring for her, taking care of her as she recovered. But while we were home, we somehow got our hands on a free trial of Disney+. Plus. We're like, yeah, Disney+. Plus. And uh, they had almost all the Marvel movies on there. So, like, I was, I was a little geeked because it's like, I, I really enjoy those, you know, comic book movies, the, the Marvel movies. Um, so I watched the entire MCU, the entire MCU from Iron Man 1. I don't count Hulk. Hulk is garbage. You know, because, like, first of all, it wasn't even Mark Ruffalo. First it started with Eric Banana, and then you went on to Ed Norton. You know, so it's like, there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's no Hulk. Uh, so, yeah, so from Iron Man 1 all the way to, at that time, Avengers Endgame, like the final, the final thing. Uh, and it was fun. It was pretty fun. It was pretty cool. A lot of wasted time, I will admit. But, I mean, that's really all we had during that season of our life was just time. I mean, it's not like... Like, hey, Brandy, you want to go out? Like, I have a surgery. You know, but, um, so, yeah. However, I wasn't able to watch the Spider-Man movies, you know, the new Spider-Man movies with Tom Holland, because they weren't available on Disney+. And those are a part of the MCU, right? So there are pieces of the MCU that I, that I am unaware of that I'm unaware of, and now it's even worse because now they got all these, all these series and shows and, and all these extra movies. Like Marvel is now the Starbucks of the early 2000s. And for those of you who don't understand that reference, which is probably a lot of you here, uh, my old folks, we know, we know what that means. So in the early 2000s, um, there was a time when, when Starbucks wasn't everywhere. For those of you who may not be aware, some of you are like, what? Yeah, there was a time when Starbucks wasn't on every street corner. But then the popularity of Starbucks, it, began, it, got, it got so large that you began to see Starbucks all over the place. And now, you know, when you see a Starbucks across the street from another Starbucks, you don't, you don't blink twice. You know, it's just, it's just normal. You guys, a lot of you were just kind of born into that. Uh, but there was a time when if you saw a Starbucks across the street from another Starbucks, you would laugh. You're like... What is wrong with these people? Like, there's a Starbucks right across the street from a Starbucks, and, you know, comedians would make jokes about it. Like, it was just a ridiculous thing to see. Like, why would you do that? Now it's normal. Um, but, you know, the franchises were popping up everywhere. They were so popular. Um, but it got too big too fast. 
Starbucks did. It got too big, too fast. So some of the stores started to close down. So now like, oh, that one's across here from now, that one shut down because there's just, it was just too much. It was too much. So the MCU is the Starbucks of the early 2000s because I heard that the new movie, Eternals, that it wasn't even that good. People, you see, some of y'all went to go see it last night and there are disappointed faces in the audience right now. So yes, so they're, they're doing too much. You know, the quality is now gonna start dropping. They're doing too much. Anyway, there's a stain on my MCU watch list is what I'm trying to say. I was intended to have seen every single Marvel, Marvel movie so that my Marvel fandom would be complete, but it's not. The same thing happened with Hunger Games. You know, back when all that stuff, when those movies were out, you know, my wife and I at the time, she was my girlfriend, we would, we would even go to the theater. You guys ever, you guys ever heard of a theater? You know, there's, we go to the movie theater and, and watch the Hunger Games movies, and, um, but we, you know, we, we missed like the last one or two, I don't remember when, when we stopped, but... The calling and intention of my life was, was to have seen all of the Hunger Games movies, to know what happens to Cadmus and the resist. That was weird. <laughs> too much. Too much. Uh, but yeah, and I know I could, I could probably read the book, you know, to find out what happens and all that, but I'm not going to do that. Ain't nobody reading the book. Get out of here. Um, but there's an asterisk on my life. There's an asterisk on my life as it pertains to time spent in the presence of Hunger Games. It's not complete. And in regards to the Lord's presence, bringing it back, in regards to the Lord's presence, there exists an asterisk on our lives because sin has caused a separation between us and God. And the completeness of our dwelling with God has been ruined. There should have never been a break in our dwelling with God. So literally, any time spent any time that has been spent away from the Lord and in the Lord, be it a few minutes, a few years, or a few decades, is more than enough time spent living apart from him and living like a heathen. Any amount of time. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. How, many, how much time have you spent as a liar in your past life? Well, that's enough time. No more lying. How much time have you spent as a drunkard? Cool. That's enough. No more drunkardness. How much time have you spent as a jealous, covetous person? Great. That's enough. No more of that. How much time have you spent as a sexual deviant, be it premarital sex, pornography, homosexuality, pedophilia, any other sexually deviant behavior. Okay, that's enough time. No more of that. The fact is that we all have a dead in sins part of our lives, and we also have a born again part of our lives. We all had to cross that uncrossable chasm that existed because of our sin that was made traversable because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So regardless of your death to life ratio, whether you've been in the Lord five minutes, five years, or five decades, we all need a savior. And we all need to repent of our sins, to turn from our sins, because we've spent more than enough time in those sins. And we praise God, we praise God for the grace that was extended to us, 
that gave us the ability to see our need for him. And make no mistake, we are to turn from our sins. We are absolutely to turn from our sins. In 1 John 1.6, it says, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You're a liar. You turn from your old ways and you keep turning from your old ways no matter the reaction of those around you. So let's look at verse 4 again in 1 Peter chapter 4. Let's look at verse 4. It says, In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So remember, these believers that Peter is writing to, they were similar to us in that they were strangers and aliens where they were living. They were not the norm. They were not the norm. People around them were living their lives for themselves, and these believers that Peter is writing to, he's encouraging them to live for the Lord. So let's briefly look at the activities that Peter lists in verse 3 to see how similar their environment was to ours. So the original audience, they were surrounded by a specific kind of people, and we're going to see how it's the same thing today. So first of all, Peter describes these activities in verse 3. He says, the desire of the Gentiles, meaning the intention, the will, the purpose of the Gentiles. These things are for them their reason for living. This is what life is for them. In the same way that the things that I did in my sins were my reasons for living. I lived for a good party. I lived for a drunken night. I lived for sexual morality. But it was all leading to death in the end. And we'll get to more of that in our third point. But Peter writes that they pursue sensuality and lusts. Sensuality and lust, which is to say they are in pursuit of unbridled lusts, an excessive lewdness and lasciviousness, a shameless pursuit of sexual desires, a, sh a shameless pursuit of sexual desires. So you think of all these apps that exist nowadays. They exist for the purpose of solely being able to hook up with other people. You think of all these easily accessible sources of pornography. Don't you think that we're surrounded by people who are all about pursuing sexual pleasure? I would say that we are. And so were these believers that Peter is writing to in 1 Peter. And then Peter lists drunkenness, carousing, and drinking parties, which all refer to a lifestyle of getting drunk partying, hooking up at parties, a violent disturbance of the peace through these parties. I read these things, and I can think of countless examples of these types of activities in my previous life of sin, and then also in the lives of those around me. So this definitely exists nowadays, but Peter, he's writing this to the believers in the first century, so humans don't change. Humans do not change. And then Peter writes, they also pursue abominable idolatries, which is the worship of false gods. The worship of false gods, and this included sacrifices made to these false gods as, as well as sexual deviance. That included that as well. As well as other practices created by men in order to worship these made-up, lowercase g gods. And we still have this today. We still have this today, be it false religions like Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, atheism, hedonism, whatever ism. It's all a false god 
that causes people to worship at a throne other than the throne of the one true God. And we all, we all come from a background that is similar to these things that Peter lists in 1 Peter. We all have something that we've been saved out of, which means that we all have people that we used to roll with who are now looking at us like we're crazy because we don't do the things that we used to do. And in addition to that, and more in line with the context of this letter, the general public surrounding us, the general public surrounding us will also look at us like we're crazy because we don't do the things that they do. We don't look like them. Peter says that they are surprised that you don't do the things that you used to do and they even malign you. They speak critically about you. They, they speak spitefully about you. They talk trash about you when they realize that you don't live the same way that they live. How many times have you heard people talk about Christianity or Christians and say that we're, we're hateful bigots, that we're judgmental and we're intolerant people? I remember when I used to work at a coffee shop, I used, to sh I used to share the gospel with my coworkers and with customers. And, you know, some people were cool with it. Some people were mildly tolerant of it. And other people, they hated it. And, you know, I would be accused of being arrogant. Like, oh, you're so arrogant. I mean, is it possible? Yes, it's possible that I could have been arrogant. That's not how I communicated, though. The issue was the truth that was being spoken, they didn't like it. And so then they started to malign me, talk trash about me. This is just another one of those instances where we're going to suffer for doing the right thing, suffering for sharing your faith. People who are dead in their sins, they don't want to see a believer walking in holiness because they'll begin to feel guilty about their own sin. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. And we need to make sure that we ourselves are not living in sin so that the power of God will be great in our lives. The time that we spent living in sin in the past is enough. That's enough. Now we move forward in godliness. You need to fight for this. You know, I was talking to a brother who was saying that his joking and sense of humor has been so stained over the years that he now finds it difficult to find humor in like innocent things. Uh, he only seems to find something funny if it's, if it's dark, if it has like a dark undertone or has some sort of innuendo that isn't necessarily holy or righteous. And he was saying that he wishes that he could get his innocence back so that he wouldn't find dark or explicit things funny anymore. It's a fight. It's a fight. You have to fight for it. I can't even front uh, and act like, like I'm above that. We have to fight. I can get carried away by these things. But we need to fight for holiness. We need to fight for innocence. We need to fight to abstain from the desires of the Gentiles. We're not like them. So we shouldn't be acting like them. And this will cause those around us, those that we know and those that we don't know, to look at us in shock and then trash us. That's just what it is. You know, it's one of those things. It's, but it's not a shallow, insignificant thing. It's not merely another person looking at us and not liking what we're doing or not doing. There's a much deeper thing taking place when people look at us with, with hatred or they speak evil about us. It's, it's a deep spiritual battle that is happening in those around us. And there are deep spiritual reasons for whatever ill feelings they have toward us. There are demons at work in people's lives. They're collaborating with people's sinful nature in order to keep them enslaved to their sin and enemies of God. And we need to be aware of this. 
We need to be aware of this when we're experiencing the persecution so that we don't get upset at the wrong party. So that we're not looking at the person who's trashing us or persecuting us and returning evil for evil, but rather understanding what spiritual battle is taking place in their own lives and knowing their mean-spiritedness toward us isn't necessarily personal. It's the sin in them that is hating the God in us. It's the sin in them that's hating the God in us. And this leads us to our third point, our final point, watching them get high. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. It says, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of the dissipation, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. So turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. You know, earlier I was talking about how the things that I used to do, the ways that I used to sin, my lifestyle of sin, that was my reason for living. Like I said, I lived for the party. I lived for the drinking. I lived for the debauchery. And I loved it. I loved it. I've said it in, years, in, in weeks past that I loved my sin. I was completely content in my sin. When people would talk about, you know, the downside of partying, like, like waking up hungover or vomiting all night in the toilet or sleeping in your own vomit, you know, they would talk about these things and other things, and they're trying to communicate, you know, the, the perils of that lifestyle. Like, oh, look, how depressing is that? For me, I was just like, man, that's part of the game. You know, that's just part of the cost of living it up. Charge it to the game, baby. You know, like, it was a good time. But all of these things, whether you enjoy them or they leave you feeling empty afterwards, they all are leading to death, regardless of how you feel about them. Because sin leads to death. And as was just stated, those who speak evil of you and persecute you, though it, it might be personal, for the most part, when you look deeper, as I said, it's the sin in them that hates the God in you. The sin in them is what causes them to look at you funny. The sin in them is what causes them to applaud sin and to hate righteousness. And this sin in them is what they're going to they're gonna have to give an account to God for when they stand before him, which is why it's important to understand the underlying spiritual battle that's taking place in their lives. If we weren't aware of the spiritual battle, we would just write these people off like, I forget you then. But because we understand that there's a spiritual battle going on, because we're engaged in this spiritual battle, or we should be at the very least, we put on the whole armor of God and we battle against our true enemy. And we fight with the word of God. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to reread the verses that we read earlier, and we're going to continue through verse 17. So let's start at verse 10. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, 
having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So these are your tools for battling. These are your tools for battling. And they're all in verse 14. Well, it starts in verse 14. All of these weapons, but one, all of these tools that you have they're all defensive weapons. We, have, we only have one offensive weapon. Everything else is a defense. We have one offensive weapon, and it's at the end of verse 17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is the same weapon that Jesus used when Satan attempted to tempt him in the wilderness. Jesus used the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, to battle Satan. Our offensive weapon of choice is the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. And going back to 1 Peter chapter 4, those that oppose us are stuck in their sin, and they will have to give an account to God for their sin. But if that happens, that means that they're going to face eternity in hell because God's justice can't allow sin to go unpunished. And that's where we come in as believers. That's where we come in. We know that they are dead in their sins. They don't realize it, but we know that they're dead in their sins and that sin is causing them to be against us. So we overcome that evil with good, and we share the good news of Christ with them. Because if we don't, they're going to remain dead in their sins and condemned to hell. This is extremely important to point out, because there are many believers. There are many believers, and I just spoke to someone a few days ago who, who thinks like this. You know, they'll want to continue being around their unsaved friends. They want to continue being around their old friends in an effort to be a, quote, good example to them. And it's not a bad thing. This isn't a bad thing. But I will say this. What example are you attempting to give your old friends? When you're around your old friends, and when they start using, because that's what they do, what are you doing? When you are around your old friends and they want to go to the bar and get hammered, what are you doing? Are you simply not taking part in their activities while still being around them? Are you sitting there watching them get high or get drunk or behave immorally and, and, and simply not doing what they're doing? Or are you sharing the only offensive weapon that you've been given to fight the spiritual battle that's going on in front of you? Are you giving them the gospel? Are you giving them the good news that Jesus Christ came to die for the very sins that they're committing right now in that moment? I find that too often believers, you know, they make, they make an attempt to be a, a good example for their non-believing friends, but they fail to provide the most important aspect of a good example, which is the gospel. You know, I've quoted Romans 10 often, on Friday nights, and this is usually the portion that I quote, Romans 10, verses 9 through 13. It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is often quoted to talk about the simplicity of the gospel, and it's beautiful, the simplicity of salvation. It's very simple. 
But what doesn't usually get quoted is what follows, and it speaks to the point that I'm trying to make right now. Romans 10, verses 14 and 15, it says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. It's good to be a good example to non-believers in your life. It's good to be a source of good behavior and positivity for the lost people in your life. But if you're not presenting them with the gospel of their salvation, then how powerful are all of your efforts actually? To what end are all of your acts working towards? These people need to be saved from their sins and from God's wrath. And Romans 1:16 and 17 says that, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So don't be ashamed of the gospel, and don't fear the negative or undesirable responses that you may get as a result of your words. Simply not getting high with your friends, simply not getting drunk with your friends, simply not partaking in the sinful behavior that your friends are partaking in isn't going to save them. The gospel is the only thing that can do that. And just very quickly, um, let's look at verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. It was preached even to those who are dead. Once again, Peter is not promoting a purgatory type of situation. Bible teachers have concluded that given the context of this letter and the totality of Scripture, that Peter is encouraging the believers who are facing persecution that the gospel is our hope. The gospel is our hope. So Peter is encouraging his original audience that the Christians who were persecuted and martyred, though they were misjudged by men and therefore killed, now they're receiving their true just judgment in God's presence because of the gospel that they believed and that was preached to them before they died. So the NIV translates it really well. It says, for this reason, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So as a way of concluding everything, I feel like there's a lot of stuff <laughs> tonight. As a way of concluding everything that we talked about, um, we need to embrace the suffering that comes from this walk with Christ. We need to embrace the suffering that comes from this walk with Christ. This walk with Christ will produce suffering because we're all engaged in a spiritual battle that has eternal implications. But even when we do suffer, we can be encouraged because in the suffering of the battle, we find that we are less distracted by our sin and temptations. That's why David refusing to go out to the battle was the beginning of his downfall. He removed himself from the fight. So we need to keep ourselves in the battle. We need to stay away from our old lifestyles of sin. We've spent more than enough time living that way, and it's robbed so much from us already. And living in this way, not living in the way that we used to, but pursuing Christ, 
It will cause those around us to look at us funny or even persecute us. But that's all part of the battle as well. So we engage the enemy on those fronts and we use the word of God, the sword of the spirit, to fight against the enemy. To fight him in our own battles against sin and to fight him as we seek to snatch those out of the fire who have nothing to look forward to but judgment and hell. So I hope that the Lord used tonight's message, spoke to you guys. If he has, um, then I encourage you to go see the leaders. They're going to be standing in the back during our closing worship. Get some prayer. Uh, get encouraged. And um, yeah, let's just let's worship the Lord.